Mr. Huxley, in your new essays, you state that these various enemies of freedom are pushing us toward a real-life, brave new world, and you say that it's awaiting us just around the corner. First of all, can you detail for us what life in this brave new world, which you fear so much, what life might be like? Well, to start with, I think this kind of the dictatorship of the future, I think will be very unlike uh, the dictatorships which we've been familiar with in the immediate past. I mean, take another book prophesying the future, uh, which was a very remarkable book, uh, George Orwell's 1984. Mm -hmm. Well, this book was written at the height of the Stalinist regime and just after the Hitler regime. And he, there he foresaw a dictatorship using entirely the methods of terror, the methods of physical violence. Now, I, I think what, what is going to happen in the future is the dictators will find, as the old saying goes, that you can do everything with bayonets except sit on them. That if you want to preserve your power indefinitely, you have to get the consent of the ruled. And this they will do, partly by drugs, as I foresaw in, uh, in Brave New World, partly by these uh, new techniques of, uh, uh, of propaganda. They will do it by bypassing the sort of rational side of man and appealing to his uh, subconscious and his uh, deeper emotions and uh, his physiology even, and so making him actually love his slavery. I mean, I think this is the danger, that actually people may be in some ways happy under the new uh, regime, but they will be happy in situations where they oughtn't to be happy. Now, but let me ask you this. You're talking about a world that could take place within the confines of a totalitarian state. Hmm. Let's become more immediate, more urgent about it. We believe, anyway, that we live in democracy here in the United States. Do you believe that this brave new world that you talk about uh, could, let's say, in the next quarter century, the next century, could come here to our shores? I think it could. I mean, I... I that's why I feel it's so extremely important here and now to start thinking about these problems. Okay, that excerpt you just heard was from a 1958 interview of Aldous Huxley being conducted by Mike Wallace. This is CJ, your hazardous history helmsman and guerrilla scholar warrior, back finally with another installment of the Dangerous History Podcast. It's been, I think, what, two weeks or just about two weeks since I did episode 74, and man, has it been a rough couple of weeks for me as far as... Things just hitting me all at once, been nailed with excessive work stuff, family stuff, um, all getting in the way of my ability to work on the podcast as much as I normally would. And then combine that with, I did try to do a couple of episodes during my commute, you know, recording while driving uh, recently and had some hardware issues that were just, um, I, I could not in good conscience release the recordings I made. I'm willing to tolerate you know, it not being as good of quality in the car, but this was just uh, beyond the pale. I, I couldn't, I couldn't publish these in good conscience. So uh, anyway, finally, finally able to sit down 
in the home office studio and put together an episode that I've been planning on doing and, and working on my notes for for quite a long time. So this is episode 75 of the DHP, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking about three famous sci-fi dystopia novels written in the 20th century, and those are Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, 1984 by George Orwell, and This Perfect Day by Ira Levin. But before I get into that, I want to give the Patreon shoutouts. Really, a lot, of, a lot of good folks have stepped up since the last episode I made and signed up as Patreon supporters of the show. So, shoutouts and muchas gracias to John, Adam, Brian, Ray, Lawrence, Aaron, Todd, CJ, no, not me sponsoring myself, another CJ, and also Kent, and last but not least, Michael. So, quite a few great folks stepping up to help me out and help the show. Thank you all very, very much. I really do appreciate it. You are all awesome. And to the rest of you, I hope you'll consider supporting the show via Patreon. Sign up as a supporter of the Dangerous History Podcast on Patreon for any amount per episode. And I'll give you a shout out, a thank you by name on the next episode that I record after you've signed up. And if you sign up as a supporter on Patreon for this show for at least one dollar, one buck per episode. And of course, please feel free to do more. Uh, many of you already have. If you can, if you can afford more and enjoy this show and want to help out, hey, sign up for two, three, five, ten, a hundred dollars per episode if you want to. But sign up for at least a buck per episode, and not only will I give you a thanks by name in the next episode I make, but in addition, you'll be able to access bonus episodes that I am putting up there monthly, exclusively for Patreon supporters of the Dangerous History Podcast. The first Patreon bonus episode I made was uploaded a few weeks back. Uh, I think roughly around the middle of August, and it was entitled Dangerous History and Personal Liberation. And the next one should be coming in a couple weeks towards the latter part of this month. And I'm planning on that one probably being my much talked about Samurai and Ninja episode. So I hope if you're not already signed up as a supporter of the show on Patreon, that you might consider doing so. Patreon.com slash Prof CJ. Anyway, on to today's topic, we're going to be looking at three sci-fi dystopian novels that were written during the 20th century. And I have to say, I'm not the biggest sci-fi nerd, but there are certain niches of sci-fi that I enjoy very much. And one of them is dystopia sci-fi. This subgenre is probably one of my favorite sci-fi subgenres, along with just a handful of others that I really like, including post-apocalyptic sci-fi. But a dystopia, if you're not familiar with that term, and I'm sure many of you probably are. This tends to be an intelligent and well-read audience. But just in case you're not familiar with the term or you kind of know what it is, but maybe not quite all the way fleshed out, think of a dystopia as being kind of like a bad or a negative utopia. Utopia usually having the connotations of like an imagined, you know, wonderful good society. So a dystopia is the opposite of that. It's an imaginary future society which is undesirable or bad in some significant way or ways. Though, just as a side note, if you actually read the original book, Utopia, written by Thomas More, something like, what, I forget what century that was even in, I think the 16th century? If you read Utopia by Thomas More, that to me is itself a dystopia. I mean, if you're someone who it all values individualism and autonomy and freedom. I mean, the utopia painted by Moore is quite the hellhole. It's been many years since I read that book. Um, I read it in a political science 
you know, political thought class back when I was an undergraduate, and it horrified me. I mean, it was like a, a 16th century version of North Korea, almost, I thought. So I don't know, maybe down the road, I'll do I'll do a, a, an episode on the actual original utopia, and how remember it being quite painful to read, I'm talking like, up there with Philip Drew administrator, as far as just rough to read. But anyway, in my mind, most utopias are dystopias, because most utopias depicted in fiction, even when they are intended to be very positive, involve a highly controlling state, forcing everybody to conform to and live by whatever the author considers the good, the good life and the proper rules and so on, just like Moore's original utopia. So to me, there, there are very few utopias that I wouldn't also consider a dystopia anyway. But when I talk about the dystopic sci-fi subgenre, I really mean ones that are even intended by the writers themselves to be bad. So anyway, like I said, the three novels I'm going to be talking about here, which to me anyway, I consider sort of the big three of sci-fi dystopias of the 20th century are Brave New World, 1984, and This Perfect Day. I believe 1984 is probably the most widely known and read of the three, probably followed by Brave New World, and probably This Perfect Day comes in third. Probably fewer of you have heard of and or read that one than the other two, which I think is a shame because in many ways I think it's, it's the best. So what I'm going to do is for each novel, I'm going to give you a basic description of some of the characteristics and noteworthy aspects of the world that is depicted in the story. Then I'm going to give you a quick synopsis of the story itself. And then I'm going to give you just some of my basic thoughts and reflections on each novel. And then at the end of the episode, after I've discussed each novel individually, I'm going to do a little bit more kind of sharing some overall thoughts looking at the three, maybe a little bit of, of comparing them. And so I hope you'll find this a, a a thought provoking discussion. First though, plot spoiler warning, feel like kind of like one of those people giving a trigger warning or something. If you're one of those people who is a huge plot spoiler phobic type of person, and if you haven't read all three of these books and think that you might want to, then maybe don't listen to the rest of this episode until you've read all three books, because I am not going to be concealing any major plot points when I give the synopses. But if you're not a person that needs that kind of plot spoiler trigger warning, and if you don't mind, and uh, or if you've read all three of these books and already know the basic story, then please, by all means, listen on. And I personally, I'm not one of those plot spoiler phobic people. My feeling is if it's a good story, that is, you know, the story itself is sound and it is well, well written, well conveyed with, with, uh, skillful telling and good, interesting three dimensional characters. Then to me, it doesn't actually spoil if I've already seen a synopsis. It still is quite enjoyable to then read the entire book. But anyway, that's just me. So I'm going to go through the books in chronological order of when they were, when they were first published, which means I'm going to be doing Brave New World first then 1984, then This Perfect Day. So, first, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, which was first published in 1932. A little bit about the world of the novel. It is set in the year 2540 AD, which is generally referred to in the story as, I believe, 632 AF. AF meaning after Ford, after Henry Ford started making the Model T. And part of the thinking is... The state in this in this story is very much inspired by the whole concept of mass production, 
And so they treat Henry Ford almost the way like a modern Christian society would treat Christ. And people even use references and symbols having to do with Ford and even with the Model T as, you know, like holy symbols. So in this future, you have a world state that is run by 10 controllers, you know, top individuals in charge of different areas. And the motto of this world state in Brave New World is community, identity, stability. And out of all those, the last one, stability, seems to be the most important. Population is kept very closely limited. New people only replace old people so that the the number of population is constant. And everyone is placed into one of five rigid levels on a caste system. Caste, C-A-S-T-E, right? And those levels are named after Greek letters of the alphabet, alpha at the top, followed by beta, gamma, delta, and then at the bottom, epsilon. Human reproduction is all done artificially in hatcheries. And there's a lot of description of these hatcheries and how they work, and then how the the infants and children are raised and conditioned in various ways. There's reference to something called Bokanovsky's process, which is a process of making 96 people out of one human egg. And in the book, it says, quote, millions of identical twins, the principle of mass production at last applied to biology, end quote. Bokanovsky's process is used with all of the casts except for the top two, alpha and beta. And those are the two that are the ones that get to be, you know, relatively intelligent, physically attractive, and so on. And the three classes below them do all the kind of grunt labor and so forth. And the lower castes, those, those below the beta level, have their intelligence and their physiology deliberately hobbled. So they're not as strong, they're, they're not as, you know, tall and impressive of physical specimens, they're not as smart, whatever, in order to make them fit perfectly into their station. Now, once they are hatched and start to grow, children are educated, quote-unquote, using hypnopedic methods, which means endless repetitive messages while sleeping, and also using psychological conditioning to make them like certain things and have a gross aversion to others. Now, in this society, everyone's capacity to think individually and think critically is very much hobbled. The lower orders have their critical thinking hobbled through deliberate biological engineering, while the upper upper orders that retain some innate intelligence have their critical thinking hobbled instead through social pressures and taboos, kind of a way of horizontal enforcement. You know, as soon as you start thinking independently, all of your your associates and neighbors and friends in your in your class are going to make fun of you, ostracize you, whatever. So basically, if you want to fit in and be liked and have the pretty girls like you and so on, you've got to avoid having independent thoughts. So things such as wanting solitude or deep thinking are all socially sanctioned. Everyone is expected to always want to be with others and to stay always very shallow in terms of intellectual depth, stay always very much on the surface. Hedonism is also used to help control, especially the upper orders. Hedonism, just constantly seeking for sensual pleasure, this is seen as a positive good in all cases, and anyone who doesn't want to just always be diving into hedonism is distrusted. So 
casual sex, including orgies. These are all the norm. Anyone who has any inkling of not being interested in this or anyone who has any desire to have something more along the lines of monogamous romantic relationships is seen as someone who's, you know, got something wrong with them. And another way that people are controlled using sensual pleasure and so on is the use of the drug Soma which is everywhere in society in Brave New World. And Soma, depending on its dose, can act as a, as a sedative or even as a hallucinogen. One of the catchphrases of this society is, everyone belongs to everyone else. And of course, notice the blatant rejection of any notion of self-ownership. Now in Brave New World, you seem to have a fair degree of material abundance and comfort, at least for the upper upper castes. And... There's an economy that's very much a Keynesian's dream. It's an economy that's centrally planned and with deliberate encouragement to consumption. There's various references throughout the story to things that the state does just to make people consume more, even when they don't need to, because that's good for the overall goals of the system. And you you can tell that's very much influenced by Uh, Keynesian economics that was just starting to become big in the 30s when Huxley was writing this and a lot of people during the depression and still to this day theorizing that the problem that caused the Great Depression was overproduction and underconsumption. Now, I I won't get into the details of why that's a very flawed economic uh, analysis, but, um, you know, for the sake of time in this episode. But anyway, that's that's the thinking that then was influencing Huxley and Huxley's view of what might happen in the future. So the vast majority of the planet is controlled by this world state, but there are a few kind of rugged and remote areas that are not, and these are referred to as savage reservations. These are people who are not genetically and socially engineered the way those inside the world state are, and they're people that still cling to various things that um, citizens of the world state would consider bizarre, primitive things like holding the ideal of monogamy and and romance in relationships, things like still having religious ideas, still having a concept of family loyalty and family cohesion. All of these things have no place inside the boundaries of the world state, but the savages out there on the reservations still do these things. So quick synopsis of the story. The book doesn't really have a single protagonist, I guess. In a way, I guess Bernard Marx is the closest, but then there's also another significant character, a female named Lenina Crown, and another important character named John that we'll get to in a minute. So kind of our, our two main characters from the world state are Bernard Marx and Lenina Crown. Both work in a hatchery, but while Lenina is happy and easily fits into the society, Bernard doesn't. He's very much a misfit. He's an alpha, but he's smaller in stature than most alphas. Like most alphas, he is very intelligent, but unlike most of them, he actually questions the society that he lives in a lot. And it's just kind of an unhappy misfit in a lot of ways. Well, Bernard takes Lenina on a visit to a savage reservation in southwestern North America And there they find people living very differently from themselves, including engaging in all sorts of strange rituals and things. While there, they meet a woman named Linda, who was actually originally from the world state. 
but got left on the reservation. And they also meet Linda's son, John. Linda had apparently been impregnated before leaving on the trip by the man who is now Bernard's boss. Now, Linda and her son, John, haven't been accepted by the savages' societies. They're seen as outsiders. And as a result, they've lived a rather hard life. John can read, but he hasn't had access to much in the way of reading material. So he's got, I think, a a science book or something like that. And then he also has the collected works of Shakespeare. So he often expresses himself in terms of Shakespeare quotes and Shakespeare references, which honestly gets old after a while, I thought. Linda and John persuade Bernard and Lenina to take them back with them to London, where they came from. And Linda wants to go because she desperately misses it. And John has never been there, and he's very much curious to see what it's like. Now, when they get back into world state, you know, quote-unquote civilization, John becomes instantly a celebrity and a curiosity in the society. And by default, as his sort of handler, so does Bernard. For the first time in his life, Bernard is popular within his society, and as a result, for the first time in his life, he starts to actually like the society. Now he's suddenly getting attention and popularity and pretty girls and so on. But it doesn't last very long. John quickly gets disillusioned by the decadence of the society, and after a while, he refuses to go to any more parties and social events and whatnot, and this causes Bernard to rapidly lose his popularity that he had just gotten. Also, John and Lenina have a weird love-hate relationship where they're attracted to each other, but they have such stark differences around their concepts of love and how men and women should relate to each other that it just flat out cannot work. You know, John believes in old-fashioned romantic love, while Lenina is typical of her society, believes in stuff like everyone belongs to everybody else, and so on. When his mother, Linda, dies... John pretty much loses his shit, and as a result, John, Bernard, and Bernard's friend Helmholtz end up getting in trouble for disrupting society. Bernard and Helmholtz are exiled to islands, while John instead goes to this remote lighthouse where he's going to live kind of like a hermit's life, I guess. But then people start coming to see him as like a curiosity or a tourist attraction. And then John starts to attack them. And that makes them only even more, you know, amused by his behavior. Well, eventually Lenina comes to see him and John goes nuts, um, attacks her with a whip and then later kills himself. And that's how the story ends. Now, my thoughts on this story, to be honest, while I think that the novel does have some important insights to offer into how, particularly softer systems of control can operate very effectively. I have to say as a purely literary work, I just don't dig it very much. I find the characters a bit one dimensional and the ending unsatisfying, not, not because it's not a happy ending. You can have an unhappy ending, but it's still satisfying from the point of view of like the story. Right. I mean, you know, think of, I don't know how breaking bad ended or something like that. Right. It's not exactly a happy ending, but it's satisfying. And Brave New World, for whatever reason, I just did not find to be a satisfying ending. That said, I think very much that Brave New World nails the concept of using pleasure to control the intelligent while using other means to control the less intelligent. I think that's very perceptively uh, portrayed. And I think that the story, the, the novel also nails the importance of horizontal enforcement, of social sanction of one's, you know, peers and associates and friends, 
which oftentimes is actually more effective and more efficient in the long run than brute force in controlling people's thoughts and actions and getting them to conform. And Brave New World does do a great job of showing how the members of this society, even the alphas and the betas, are successfully infantilized by the state. They are very much kept in a childlike state, but without even the upside of of being a child, which is that innate curiosity that so much characterizes children who haven't yet been broken by the system. But I, I think it's a great example of how pleasure and how things like psychological conditioning, um, biological engineering even, and also chemicals to alter one's state of mind and so on, all these things can potentially be very, very powerful tools to those who would wish to control people. Moving on to 1984, which George Orwell wrote in 1948 and then published in 1949. This one, I think, like I said before, is the most commonly read of these three novels. It probably has by far the most sort of phrases and words and concepts that have worked their way into the vernacular. Things like thought police, memory hole, doublethink, newspeak, right? Um, These are all things that reasonably literate and educated people will generally know. This novel is also, in most ways, the bleakest and the darkest of the three that I'm talking about today. Now, the world in this one is set not as far in the future as the others. It's set in a fictional 1984 as viewed from the late 1940s. And the state in this one, which is often just referred to as the party with a capital P, relies the least on horizontal enforcement and social enforcement of the rules and norms. There's some of that going on, but it's much more vertical enforcement, top down. The state using violence and threats directly to affect your behavior. The impact that this book has had on how people think of and speak about oppression is hard to overstate. Orwellian language itself has become a commonly used term. And many of the the terms that Orwell coined in this novel are just now so commonplace that even spellcheck won't red flag them. So, of course, the, the world of 1984, you have this country called Oceania, which consists basically of North America and the British Isles. And Oceania is run by the party with a capital P. And there's the inner party, which are the elite who are really the ones that are controlling things and who get, you know, the nicest stuff and whatever. And then there's the outer party who are not sort of like your middle class, I guess. They're, they're a bit better off than most people, but they are not quite as well off and certainly not nearly as powerful and influential as the inner party. And then you have the proles, shortened version of proletarian, right? Who according to the novel, make up about 85% of the population. By the way, there's some interesting stuff throughout the book about the proles. Winston Smith, the story's protagonist, is very conflicted about what to make of them. On the one hand, he thinks that because in some ways they they are the least directly plugged into the party's ideology, he does say things like, if there's any hope, it's to be found in the proles. But on the other hand, he observes that they're kind of stupid and very easily controlled and manipulated, and they only seem to get really passionate about unimportant trivialities or about things that the government is kind of whipping them up, you know, against foreign enemies or whatever. And at one point, Winston Smith writes in his secret journal, quote, until they become conscious, they will never rebel. And until after they have rebelled, they cannot become conscious, end quote. And later in the novel, Orwell writes about Smith's thoughts on the matter as follows, quote, But if there was hope, it lay in the proles. 
You had to cling on to that. When you put it in words, it sounded reasonable. It was when you looked at the human beings passing you on the pavement that it became an act of faith, end quote. Now, all I can say is, yeah, you ever look around your local Walmart? That, for me at least, has a tendency to extinguish any hope for the masses themselves redeeming things, at least, you know, does for me, just based on appearance. Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, at the top of the party, there's Big Brother, this mustachioed character whose image is everywhere and you're supposed to love him and so on. And in the story, it's hard to tell if he even is, is a real person or not, or is he just an invented image? The party in 1984 is changing the language. They have Newspeak, where the language is constantly being simplified and controlled as, as a way to control people's thoughts. As another George, George Carlin, put it, by controlling the language, the powers that be want to control your thoughts. Speaking of which, the party also has another concept called doublethink, which is basically like being able to hold two contradictory concepts at once without any feeling or notion that you're being logically inconsistent or, or having any feeling of cognitive dissonance. And this can be found even in the most basic slogans of the party, such as war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. And the party's agencies or ministries have names that in many ways are the complete opposite of what they do. So you have the ministry of love, which is in charge of punishing and torturing people, the ministry of peace, which is in charge of war, the ministry of plenty, which is the one running the centrally planned economy that is terrible at providing for people's basic wants and needs and comfort items, and the ministry of truth, which is in charge of propaganda, controlling information. So a brief story synopsis, the protagonist, of course, is named Winston Smith. He works in the Ministry of Truth, wherein he's one of the people who constantly alters the record of the past in order to help the party control the present and the future. Part of his job is destroying any inconvenient documentation or evidence of non-favored truths or inconvenient narratives by consigning any such contradictory evidence that, you know, goes against what the party is telling you is the truth, consigning such evidence to the memory hole where it just disappears. And for whatever reason, Winston Smith is unable to stifle his curiosity for the truth, especially regarding the past, even though he knows that questioning things and any nonconformist behavior is guaranteed to get him caught sooner or later by the dreaded thought police, who are the ones in charge of taking care of those who think for themselves and question the party. Smith lives in a place called Airstrip One, which is basically England, which, like I said before, is part of Oceania, a combination of the UK, the US, and basically the British Commonwealth states. And Oceania is one of the three super states that exists in this future world, the other two being East Asia, which is exactly what you would think, and Eurasia, which is, you know, most of Europe and then into Russia. And these three states are always constantly shifting in terms of they have wars going against each other and they're making alliances with each other. And, you know, one day Oceania is allied with Eurasia against East Asia. And then the next day it suddenly switches and nobody even thinks about that it had just changed. In fact, people act as if whatever the whatever the status is today is what it always has been. 
And just as a side note, you can see this very often, I think, in how much of the American people who get their information from mainstream media are so easily manipulated into, you know, one day this country's our friend, oh, the next day they're the most evil thing in the world, we have to take them out. One day this group over here are freedom fighters, the next day they're terrorists. And there's not even any acknowledgement of this change. And people just sort of act like it's always been that way. Now, in Winston Smith's world, there's a total surveillance state in place. Everyone has a telescreen in their home, which is kind of like a two-way TV. It pumps propaganda into your house, and it also spies on you. Winston Smith begins doing something very dangerous in this world. He begins writing a private journal in what he thinks is, anyway, the safety of this little alcove in his flat that he believes is, is a place out of sight of the telescreen. Now, there's a young woman named Julia who works in the same building as Smith, whom Smith initially despises and hates because he thinks she's just a simple party zealot. However, she secretly contacts him with a love note and the two end up having this affair. And it turns out that Julia actually hates the party, too. Now, while they're having this affair, Smith begins to wonder about this group called the Brotherhood, which is supposedly a secret anti-party group. And the leader of this supposed group, the much demonized Emmanuel Goldstein, who is considered public enemy number one, and it's off the tar- often the target of um, 10 Minutes Hates, where people are just, you know, ranting and screaming and frothing about how much they hate him. It's almost like a religious experience of speaking in tongues, but directing hate at some enemy of the state. Well, eventually, Winston Smith approaches this inner party member named O'Brien, whom Smith believes might be part of the Brotherhood. And O'Brien says, yes, he is part of this Brotherhood, and he sort of inducts Smith into this group, and Julia as well, and he gives him a subversive book called The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism, written by Emmanuel Goldstein, which is a very interesting book itself, and excerpts of it appear in 1984. And uh, one can only assume that much of the thoughts expressed there are probably pretty close to Orwell's own thoughts. And actually, in many ways, a lot of what is um, revealed from this book by Goldstein is in many ways quite close to my own take on society and the state and how they really operate. But anyway, Smith and Julia end up getting busted by the thought police. Turns out O'Brien himself was a member of the thought police all along. This is all just an elaborate entrapment thing that they routinely run to catch anyone who has any inkling whatsoever to rebel and it almost seems like the brotherhood itself doesn't even exist it's a it's a fiction invented by the state in order to lure anyone with any nonconformist tendencies into basically incriminating themselves so from that point onward winston and julia are separated and they then have to endure a variety of physical and psychological tortures until finally they don't merely confess their own guilt They don't merely rat each other out, but far beyond that, they are ultimately brought to the party's final goal, which is convincing them to genuinely love Big Brother. Now, some of my thoughts on this book, I believe this book is deservedly considered a classic. Orwell's a great writer. I think he's a better writer than Huxley. And so many of his ideas in this book have entered common parlance, and the book's very quotable, and it's obviously exaggerating some of the trends that were already beginning in Orwell's lifetime in places like the Soviet Union. But the world is painted very vividly, and so it is somewhat believable. One thing that really appeals to me personally in this book is that it does a great job 
of examining the role of history and how control of the narrative and the details of history is a very powerful tool in the toolbox of those who wish to control the present and thereby control the future. Which, by the way, something that Winston Smith understands firsthand from his job at the Ministry of Truth. Here's a quote from the book. It's sort of like um, Winston Smith's inner, inner monologue. Quote, If the party could thrust its hand into the past and say of this or that event, it never happened. That, sure, was more terrifying than mere torture and death. The party said that Oceania had never been in alliance with Eurasia. He, Winston Smith, knew that Oceania had been in alliance with Eurasia as short a time as four years ago. But where did that knowledge exist? Only in his own consciousness, which in any case must soon be annihilated. And if all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the past, ran the party slogan, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past, end quote. And there's actually a scene in the book where Winston Smith tries to talk to this very old man in a tavern, this old guy who's old enough to have lived some of his life prior to the revolution in which the party took over. And this man can only remember miscellaneous anecdotes and incoherent rambling details blended with somewhat of an acceptance of the official narrative just to sort of fill in the gaps. I mean, it gets to a point where people are remembering their own past through the filter of the official narrative. Now, I agree with Huxley's criticism of 1984 in that brief excerpt I played at the beginning of this episode, that the system as depicted in 1984 really couldn't endure long term without some modification to include some of the softer elements of control that are found in Brave New World and also in the last book we're going to discuss, This Perfect Day. The reality, I think, is that the state, no matter how totalitarian it is, has to provide some pleasure in order to buy the loyalty of people, and especially to buy the loyalty of those who are naturally intelligent or naturally um, have sort of leadership characteristics. Those people can be, those people can't be controlled forever entirely through pain and terror and, and all the bad stuff. There's got to be a good cop to balance out the bad cop in order for a system to endure for, you know, a really long period of time. So there needs to also be social, horizontal enforcement of the state's values and wishes. Top-down enforcement from the state alone cannot make a system endure indefinitely. Now, I have to say, one thing that 1984 does get or portray much better than Brave New World or even This Perfect Day, for that matter, is the role of war and of enemies and of hate and of militarism in helping an elite to get and keep control of a society. You have East Asia, Eurasia, and Oceania fighting between themselves, largely over the remaining parts of the world, such as Africa and Latin America. And in these wars, no one ever really wins. But the victory is always depicted as being just around the corner, and the alliances shift, and everyone just accepts the new situation as normal and as how it's always been. And the wars provide this way to divert everyone's attention and to channel everyone's uh, anger and hatred and so on in this way that's helpful to the state's interests, rather than running the risk of all that, uh, you know, all those negative feelings and whatever being directed against the state itself. They're directed against an external enemy. And again, all you have to do is look around modern society, particularly modern American society, to see this at work. And one more thing I'll say about 1984 is that 
there, there's a really great concept here that is very profound, and that is that freedom really ultimately is only a value if it is the freedom to pursue an individual understanding of reality, regardless of what the state or society says. So, as Winston Smith writes in his secret journal, quote, Freedom is the freedom to say that two and two make four. If that is granted, all else follows. End quote. And the last book I'm going to discuss today is Ira Levin's This Perfect Day, which was written in the late 60s and was first published in 1970, I believe. And in my humble opinion, this is the best of the three novels here. Why? Well, I think it's the best written, and I think it's the most relevant to where things have actually gone in real life. Although, to be fair, this book does have the advantage of being written decades after the other two. Right, Brave New World was written in the 30s, 1984 was written in the 40s, by being written in the late 60s, and it's the only one of the three books that was written by an American, Ira Levin, you know, had a more advantageous position in time and in geography to really get a better grasp on where the future of American society in particular was going. And America as the dominant economic and cultural country in the latter half of the 20th century had an outsized impact on a lot of trends in the rest of the world as well. Now, Ira Levin, a very good writer, very accomplished writer, if the name doesn't ring a bell, probably some of his books do. He's the author of, among other things, Rosemary's Baby, uh, The Stepford Wives, Boys from Brazil, a bunch of other well-known stories. And in fact, most of his novels have been made into movies. I think This Perfect Day, if I remember right, is only one of two of his novels that was not made into a movie. The other one that wasn't made into a movie was the sequel to Rosemary's Baby. The world of This Perfect Day is a world that is controlled by a single, powerful supercomputer called Unicomp, most often referred to just as Uni for short. Now, the society that is run by Uni, which encompasses most of the world, is referred to as the family, and every individual in it is referred to as a family member or just member for short. And they are under constant surveillance. It's, it's much less aggressive and brutal in, in a blatant sense than the surveillance of 1984, but nonetheless, it is still pretty constant. Everything is centrally planned and controlled, not just the economy, but even things like where you go and don't go, and things like marriage and reproduction and your sexual habits and so on. Members are regularly given what are referred to as treatment at meta-centers, and what treatments mean is that these people are heavily medicated in order to keep them docile and to keep them conforming. And these treatments seem, above all else, to suppress any strong emotions, whether positive or negative. These treatments also reduce libido and reduce some of the sex characteristics. For example, women do not grow breasts and men don't grow beards when they're on these treatments. Every member of this society has a bracelet that they have to constantly scan at scanners as they go places. And this keeps them monitored. And this then, the scanner system controls whether or not they are admitted to a particular location. You know, if you want to go into some building, you'll scan your bracelet and then it will decide whether or not to let you in. Every individual in this society has an advisor, someone who periodically meets with them and talks to them and makes sure that they're behaving properly and that they're getting the correct treatments, you know, enough treatment to keep them the right way, but not too much treatment that it's starting to over sedate them or whatever. And this advisor is, you know, very friendly in how he talks to you. It's very much like smiley face fascism, I guess. 
Everyone in the society dies between the ages of 61 and 63, with an average of 62. In this society, there are only four names for men and four for women. Men might be named Bob, Lee, Carl, or Jesus, and women might be named Anna, Mary, Peace, or Yin. And then in addition to whatever one of those first names they have, they then have, have a last name that is referred to as a namber, which is like, I think, a couple of letters and then a bunch of digits. Now, their speech is interesting. In people's conversations in this society, the word fuck is used very, very lightly and casually. But then the words fight and hate are treated as terrible, offensive curse words. Kind of reminds me of a trend I've observed recently amongst some young kids where the word stupid is treated as if it's like this horrible, mean curse word. Now, I can understand telling a kid like, hey, it's not nice to call another person stupid. But when they are led to treat it as if it's the same as like saying motherfucker in mixed company, it to me is kind of ridiculous because I rarely call people stupid unless they really are being stupid. And then I will call them stupid. But, you know, it's, it, it's not a nice thing to use lightly against a person, but to be offended, even if someone refers to like a situation as stupid or an idea as stupid, that to me is really, really going over the top. Anyway, the, the four kind of heroes of this society that they look up to and, you know, celebrate and whatever are Jesus Christ, Karl Marx, and then two guys of much later vintage, a guy named Wood and a guy named Wei or Wei Li Chun is his full name. Now, Wei is the mastermind of unification, of creating this particular state. And he is said to have died a long time ago before Uni, the computer, was actually completed. And Wood, much less is said about Wood, but apparently Wood was like an associate or a sidekick or whatever of Wei. And there's this whole uh, rhyming chant that, you know, children say in this world. It's like, Christ, Marx, Wood, and Wei led us to this perfect day. And it goes on from there. Now, story synopsis. The protagonist of this novel is Lee, Lee coming from Wei Li Chun, Lee RM35M4419, better known as Chip. Chip for Chip Off the Old Block. He was called this by a rather unusual nonconformist grandfather that he had. This grandfather, this nonconformist grandfather, actually helped to build Uni, but apparently was a little bit conflicted in how he felt about what happened to the world once Uni was in place. The book actually opens up with Chip going with his family, including his grandfather, on a vacation to see Uni. And they go in and they're looking through glass at this big computer looking stuff. And the grandfather actually takes Chip aside and says, hey, I'll show you the real thing. And they go down into like this secret, you know, basement or whatever. And he shows them the real Uni, which is far away from where any of the tourists go. And his grandfather's telling him the story of how he helped build Uni and all this sort of stuff. And that basically, like, what, what all the tourists walk by and look at isn't even the real thing. Now, Chip grows up as generally a conformist to the society, but he does have occasional minor incidents of rebellion, where he does things he's not supposed to do. And eventually, he gets invited to join a group of nonconformists. Now, members call unrepentant nonconformists incurables. And this group of incur incurables, they tell Chip tactics he can use to get his treatment significantly reduced. And he uses these, these tactics and they work and he starts to get much less potent treatments and he starts to kind of wake up and really like become um, a more independent minded person. His feelings, both positive and negative, drastically increase as does his libido. 
and this this group of misfits you know they have these secret meetings and um one of the places they hang out a lot at is this pre-uni museum where there's all this old stuff that they like to um, you know old books they read and old maps they look at and whatever and at this pre-uni museum chip discovers that there are islands that appear on old maps but not on current ones and chip manages to put together various pieces of information and deduces that other incurables might live on these islands but before he can act on this discovery his group's activities get discovered and they're all heavily medicated or treated back into obedience and conformity now years later a natural disaster i think an earthquake if i remember right causes chip to miss his treatments and this starts to clear his head he starts to remember his time when he was really not getting treated when he was part of the group uh, more clearly and he decides he's going to try to avoid getting treated from that point on he manages to find another member a female member of his uh, incurable group that he used to meet with a woman with whom he'd had a love affair and basically he kidnaps her in order to detox her from her treatments well long story short the two do manage to escape to one of the incurable islands and they ultimately discover that that uni knows about these islands and basically the islands are used as like a safety valve or in a way like a voluntary prison for people who don't fit in well with the family, fine, let them just escape to their island and that way they're, they're out of the system. Now, the life they find on this island is problematic. In some ways, they're more free, but life on the island is not easy. There is a group of natives who are originally from there who are kind of running things and have this government, and they set things up so that the refugees from the family, right, from the mainland, once they're on this island, they're sort of like a permanent underclass who tend to get the crappier jobs and housing and so on. So it's not exactly, not exactly a great solution. Well, while living on this island, Chip starts to hatch a plan with some other like-minded people, mostly former members, to sneak in and destroy uni he's told by some of these people on the island that it's been tried many times before and, and it always fails but chip thinks he'll have a better chance because remember his grandpa the one who helped build uni and the one who started calling him chip in the first place way back during their visit when chip was a kid the grandfather had told him where the real uni was and in fact in the process of showing chip the real uni his grandfather had shown him this little known tunnel and so chip thinks all right that's what we'll use to sneak in and blow it up or whatever so chip puts together a group on the island and they eventually set out on this mission to destroy uni but instead of getting in and destroying uni they're led by one of the members of their little group to a secret underground city where they find the programmers the people who actually control uni now this contradicts what most of the population is told most of the population of the family is told that uni was programmed like when it was first built and set up but that ever since it's been making its own decisions but chip now finds out no it's not there's an entire group of people living in this secluded underground city who are the ones really pulling the levers now not only is there this whole little city of programmers but they find that Wei Li Chun himself is alive or at least his head is attached to another man's body Wei has been kept alive in this way and is now over 200 years old it turns out this whole process of having these islands of incurables and then pretty much expecting that some of them will periodically try to attack uni is a way to recruit members 
who are of above average intelligence and motivation and perhaps leadership qualities. Recruit them into joining the top tier of the system. Recruit them into being programmers. So the island of incurables was deliberately left in place. And then the programmers plant individuals on the island who will encourage people to try to attack uni so that they can be potentially recruited to become some of the programmers themselves. As Wei puts it when explaining the island of incurables to Chip, quote, At first, they were the strongholds of the original incurables. And then, as you put it, isolation wards, to which we let later incurables escape, although we weren't so kind as to supply boats in those days. By the way, side note, they, they, they actually, um, Chip and his girlfriend found a boat just sitting on a beach somewhere, and um, they thought it might have been put there on purpose, and they were right. Anyway, continuing with Wei's quote, Then, however, I found a better use for them, and now they serve as, forgive me, wildlife preserves, where natural leaders can emerge and prove themselves exactly as you have done, end quote. Wei then goes on to explain that the programmers, they have to be people who are not treated like the rest of the members of the family. This is, to me, classic two-tiered consciousness, wherein the elite are allowed to be much more awake so long as they conform to the, so long as they help run the, um, the, the state, the apparatus, and the rest of the society is kept asleep. Um, a classic example of this sort of thing I recently had a Twitter exchange with uh, Bill Bupert about was the Prussian military and Prussian education system. In the Prussian education system, the lower classes were given kind of generic public school education in which, above all else, they were taught to obey and do what they're told by authority figures. Whereas the children of the elite went to much different schools where they were really given a real education and taught to think for themselves. And then what happened was they grow up as adults. The lower classes make up the enlisted ranks, the cannon fodder of the Prussian military, who will unquestioningly obey orders, while all the officers are people who are actually encouraged to think for themselves, to take the initiative, and even to disagree with and question the orders of their superiors. And a similar split exists in American schooling today. When you look at, for example, how most Americans of the middle and lower classes are schooled versus how the children of the elite are schooled, it's very different. And the children of the elite are typically given an education that fosters much more genuine thinking. And uh, John Taylor Gatto has written about this, this two-tiered education system in several of his books. Anyway, Wei, like so many villains throughout real and fictional history, seems absolutely convinced that what he's doing is for the common good. It's for the benefit of everyone. And in a conversation with Chip, Chip asks why the family can't make their own decisions for themselves without Uni and the programmers. And to this, Wei replies, quote, because it's incapable of doing so. That is, of doing so reasonably. Untreated, it's, well, you had a sample on your island. It's mean and foolish and aggressive, motivated more often by selfishness than by anything else. Selfishness and fear. No, the family has to be helped to full humanity. By treatments today, by genetic engineering tomorrow. And decisions have to be made for it. Those who have the means and the intelligence have the duty as well. To shirk it would be treason against the species. End quote. Anyway, Chip lives with these people, the programmers in their special city for a number of months, and it seems to be a very comfortable, happy place for this elite. And Chip appears to be starting to fit in with them. But then another group, uh, after a bunch of months, another group of saboteurs gets caught and brought to the city, and Chip gets his hands on their weapons and their bombs. And long story short, he uses those to kill Wei and destroy Uni. 
Now, some of my thoughts on this book, I think this one is the closest to where we are and where we're going. It doesn't quite have everything nailed because Levin was writing in the late 60s, so it doesn't quite have the internet nailed down the way it, you know, evolved. But it does have some of the aspects of the internet when it comes to like, you know, having having uh, surveillance electronically and that sort of thing. So the surveillance, for example, in This Perfect Day, a lot of it is largely voluntary. A lot of it is if you just decide not to scan your bracelet everywhere you go, they don't know where you're going. And, you know, if you scan your bracelet everywhere you go, Uni will decide where you can and can't go. But, you know, once Chip decides to go rogue, he's able to go a lot of places just by not scanning his damn bracelet. And to me, this is reminiscent of, of at least some of today's electronic surveillance, some of which at least is somewhat voluntary. For example, um, if you take your cell phone everywhere you go, it makes it a lot easier to track everywhere you're going and what you're doing and so on, right? So in other words, some of their surveillance to a degree is at least voluntary by default, perhaps. Also, um, this was my, my first time reading This Perfect Day in probably about at least five years since the last time I read it. And when I was reading it, and every time it talked about uni, all I could think of was the infamous Utah data center and, and how similar it is in a lot of ways. Um, the treatments remind me in part of the psychoactive drugs that so many Americans take these days, especially things like ADD, ADHD, and depression meds, things like that, which most people on those drugs take quite willingly, but occasionally people are coerced into taking if they resist. And that's sort of how the treatments are in this perfect day. The overwhelming majority of people happily voluntarily take them. But um, when you try to dodge them, they will kind of force you to be treated. And this book does the best of showing the utility of having some degree of upward class mobility into the elite. So that, you know, utility, I mean, from the, from the standpoint of the state. So that the smartest, the most motivated, and potentially what would be the most dangerous and rebellious members of the non-elite, the ones that had the most potential to threaten the elite, to threaten the state, they're actually recruited into, co-opted into the elite injecting it with fresh vigor and, um, you know, again, pulling anyone into the elite who might potentially re lead a rebellion from below. And this is in contrast to the much more rigid and stagnant caste systems of Brave New World and even 1984. And I think an elite that has some upward mobility into it from the middle and potentially even the lower classes to, to recruit and co-opt the best and brightest of those who are just born into lower circumstances, that's an elite that's probably going to maintain its position and privileges much more successfully over the long run. So, you know, you can look up a book like uh, Domhoff's book, Who Rules America from the 1960s, for an explanation of how the American power elite in that time period already had channels by which talented members of the middle and lower classes could work their way into the elite, but they could only do so gradually and by going through the proper channels and by essentially conforming to the elite's ways and mindset and culture. So just some overall closing thoughts on all three books. Like I said, This Perfect Day is the one I find the most readable, followed by 1984, and Brave New World is the one I find the least readable, least enjoyable to read anyway. All three books I find to contain important insights, important truths, and important predictions. Of course, no one ever can or will get all of the future accurately. But in a way, it's kind of like the old story about the blind men touching an elephant. And each one is describing just a part of it. So the one guy touches the leg and says, oh, it's a tree. The other guy touches the trunk and says, oh, it's a snake. 
Well, each of these writers, in a way, got pieces of where the world was going and has gone in their story. And then each of them had, you know, blind spots and things that they got wrong and so on. I think that this perfect day and brave new world are the strongest at showing the ability of things like chemicals and pleasure to control people. 1984 is the strongest at showing how war, hate, and fear can be used to control people. I want to share a quote from Neil Postman's foreword to his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, talking about Orwell and Huxley. Quote, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egotism, end quote. I think that what we're evolving and what may be coming down the road if the new counterculture that I've talked about previously doesn't counterbalance it to some degree is some weird combination of all three of these books, all three of these dystopias blended together, plus some other factors uh, even you know beyond that, right? I mean, none of them nailed the internet quite correctly. This weird combination of dystopias is where we might be headed if those trends are not counterbalanced by more positive trends for human freedom and individuality. These are the types of books that when you read them, you, you, whether you, when you read them, you immediately begin seeing elements of these dystopias in your own present societies. And as George Orwell wrote in 1984, when Winston Smith was reflecting on Emmanuel Goldstein's book, quote, the best books he perceived are those that tell you what you know already, end quote. Thanks for listening. I hope you found my discussion of these three dystopias interesting and worthwhile and thought-provoking. Remember to check out my website, profcj.org, for the show notes to this and all the other episodes of the Dangerous History Podcast, and feel free to place comments in there if you have specific questions or comments related to any particular episode in the comment section for that, that particular show. Remember, you can also email me with any questions, comments about anything at all related to anything remotely to do with this show, right? My email address is profcj at profcj.org. You can email subscribe to my website. There's an email subscribe thing in the right-hand sidebar. If you put your email in there, all that'll happen is you'll get a notice every time that something new has been published on my website. You can also connect with and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. And remember, if you like the show, want to help out, want to make sure that the show continues to run and continues to get better and better, ways you can support the show. One is simply to spread the word in various ways. Oh, starting to rain in the background. I'll try to wrap this up. Anyway, spread the word, um, word of mouth, word of internet, whatever. Uh, you can leave ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. Very important, very much appreciated by me. Any type of financial help or support you can lend to the Dangerous History Podcast. You can go to profcj.org slash donate to see a bunch of ways to help this show out financially. Remember, of course, you can, you can help out via Patreon. And if you pledge at least a dollar per episode, you'll have access to bonus episodes there. You can also send in donations via PayPal, either lump sum one-time donation or recurring monthly donation you can set up there. I have a PayPal button at profcj.org slash donate. I also have a Bitcoin address on that donate page as well if you want to chip in that way. And then, of course, you can also help the show out financially by simply every time you're going to go shopping and get something from Amazon.com, go there via 
any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website. And if you do that, I get a little kickback from Amazon at no additional cost to you. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Coming up, going to be starting to get into my mini-series about guerrilla and unconventional warfare, and of course, kicking that off with the conversation I'm going to be having in the relatively near future with Bill Bupert of ZeroGov.com, who is a bona fide expert in these matters. So look for that to be coming up uh, probably in about a week or so after this episode gets released. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you to learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.